I'm Greg Downing. I'm Toby Skills Youngus. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Windows. <laughs> now, now, this isn't going to work. Uh, it's way too derivative. Let's just go back to the original opening. It it works just fine for us. Okay, let's just scrap it, scrap it. All right, like, close the portal. We're starting it over again. These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart. And one we invite you to take with us. Through, through the, the wind. wind door. You know, there was absolutely no tomfoolery with our opening today, was there, Greg? So we can just start very professional, very respectable, and just kind of get on with things. Yes, absolutely. Originally, we were supposed to be working on chapters five through eight. And as it turned out, as I was beginning to write the outline, expecting to cover these four chapters, because originally the idea was... This was going to work out very well. Part one of Steamheart was going to be one through four, five through eight, nine through 12. Nice and even, you know, mm. but I kept writing things and writing more things. And I do realize the length of the paragraphs that we produce before we actually record aren't necessarily an indication of how long we're going to go on for. But the problem is, is that we're getting to the point where I had more talking points for just five through seven, even more than we did as one through four. We already know that extended to two Skype sessions. So I thought to myself, okay, if we can manage to keep on track, then maybe this is going to be sufficient for one recording. We'll see how we manage to do with that, how much we ramble on as a result. But based on previous experience, I assume that if I added talking points for Chapter 8 to the list we had, we would definitely not manage to cover everything in one session. And as it turned out, we had to stop early anyway, because Toby wasn't feeling well. We got about halfway through our list, so we will need one more Skype session to cover 5 through 7, and based on how long we went on, I suspect this will be three more episodes of content, just like Chapters 1 through 4. I don't yet know for certain what the layout of the next sets of conversations will be, but chapters 8 through 10 are thematically significant, and even though I wanted to keep our discussions cohesive to the individual act structure of Steamheart, I think doing chapters 11 through 13 next will give us plenty of material. No spoilers, of course, but chapter 13 is primarily the beginning of part 2 in order to give chapter 12, Launch Day, a prominent position structurally, in the novel. I have to say, it is unexpected. Toby and I would have this much to say about five through seven in particular, due to the fact that they are primarily recap chapters. Five mostly includes much of the story of Secret Rooms, as everybody else is interacting with it. And seven, a good portion of that, is summarizing the story of Tiger's Eye 
which mm. Toby and I have already talked a great deal about. And again, it's... didn't expect I would have as much to say about the individual aspects of it and was kind of surprised by what I put in and then what Toby put in as a result. Chapter 7 is Tiger's Eye Kai, and you would think that would make it a more digestible thing. It's still Tiger's Eye. We still have stuff to say, even if it's just a different way of relaying the events, because those events, the telling of them is all important. So even if you're telling them in some sort of different way, that's significant. And we've made as much of a meal as we have through three tellings of that first half of Tiger's Eye. We may as well make a little post-aperitif <laughs> out of a fourth telling. As some would say, and I don't necessarily know if this applies exactly, the medium is the message, and mm. the significance of the medium is part of what we're going to be getting into once we start talking about Chapter 7. But mm -hmm. that is getting ahead of ourselves, let us proceed into the meat of chapter five. Right at the start, back when I was first listening to this, or rather re-listening to it for the purposes of discussing it for Through the Window, one of the things that I noticed immediately, Abigail is commenting on how Harry has James's attention. Given Harry's mind, we can understand why that the two of them have similarly sharp engaged analytical analytical yes their minds work in a similar fashion even if they are not exact alluding to some of the stuff that we talked about last time in terms of both of them having neurodivergent brains but that they manifest and that they process in different ways but when abigail is sharing her thoughts on harry her words are focusing on how Harry smells and how she moves. She smelled of engine oil and leather and had a deliberate way of moving that was kind of pleasant. Here, those chapters in the definitive edition of Secret Rooms that reveal to us James and Abigail's romantic past make these words stand out. Especially when Abigail says later on that people will fall in love with Harry. My thought here was, would these moments have stood out if we didn't know Abigail was attracted to women? And the answer I came to is probably not as much. It probably would have passed by those remarks without really thinking about it too much, because there wouldn't have been the immediate potential context that the descriptive language or the choice of words that Abigail would use might have some sort of personal context. Yeah, it certainly helps shift the energy of the moment away from a situation that often finds its way into fiction and is frankly exhausting and somewhat unwelcome at this point. And it shifts it towards one which demonstrates a more nuanced understanding of these characters and the unique responses they will have to new situations and previously unknown people. I think at this point it's apparent that there's a will-they-won't-they they quality to Abigail and James's relationship. If it wasn't already obvious in the original edition of Secret Rooms, it certainly is in the special edition. And Abigail noticing who catches James's eye and not necessarily being over the moon about it is a very human response. But too often it can devolve into a 
trope where the woman in the scenario gets catty or just plain hostile towards the other women. The other woman is just reduced to just being the competition. This interplay can and does happen with men as well, both in and out of fiction. But while it can elicit an easy laugh for general audiences, it also reduces the people involved to their base components and often simpler versions of their own character. Abigail doesn't get shirty with Harry, and nor do we want her to. She, in fact, is seeing exactly why Harry is worth noticing and makes Dangwell sure that she shares her own admiration of her. We know these characters are fleshed out and have enough depth to them to be a core cast member of a previous book. So let's not have them resort to becoming simpler versions of themselves in order to generate cheap conflict. And ultimately, we like Abigail and we like Harry. So them seeing the qualities of one another and hitting it off is something we'd like to see. As might be obvious from Toby's delivery, this was a pre-planned response to my original notes on this subject, and I do review all notes before we start our podcast. But it wasn't till after fully engaging with Toby's response that I had a moment of bemusement, because Toby was focusing on an entirely different aspect of James and Abigail's responses to Harry than the one that came to my mind. To a certain extent, we can understand why. It's not the first time James and Abby have been interested in the same person in that way. But I was more taken aback because Toby read something into that moment that I didn't. And during the original Skype session, I had to pause to think about his words before responding. It's interesting that you point out that you're happy that this moment doesn't immediately devolve into Abigail and James potentially being as you say, competitive or caddy over Harry. But Mm. the thing is, is that at this point, I'm just noticing that Abigail might have an attraction to Harry. Again, based on the words that she uses, based on the things that she notices. I'm not convinced at this point that James is interested in Harry in the same way. It seems to be purely an intellectual fascination, like they share potentially something in common, but it doesn't necessarily lead to chemistry on a more intimate level. Mm. And we've because we've already seen chemistry between James and a woman, and it was literally in secret rooms. And in that particular case, there was totally a sort of complicated love triangle going on there, just not in the usual way where it's two men competing over a woman. Here it was a man and a woman both finding Lucy equally fascinating. And at the same time, there wasn't actually a competition going on there. The language of New Century doesn't quite allow for the usual love triangle trope which is probably a good thing because of the problems associated with such. For more information on that, check out OSP's very good episode on love triangles, which synchronistically came out just a few days after we recorded this conversation. We've already had an example of the love triangle in Let Them Go, which was a version that was even more complicated than your standard romance, 
although also very much in keeping with the gothic genre, especially given the inevitable tragedy. The relationships between Abby, Lucy, and James were even more unusual, because if not for the events leading to Lucy's death, that could have led to a stable triad, and that's not typically an outcome most pieces of fiction allow for. Was there drama? Yes, of course. But that's because their societal experiences did not prepare them for a lesbian relationship between Lucy and Abby, never mind a non-monogamous relationship between all three. I'm going to get further into my reasoning as to why I didn't read a repetition of these events in the offing in a moment, but just on a basic storytelling level, it's not a good idea to repeat yourself. Therefore, I wasn't expecting that from Alex. You know what this is? It's not a love triangle, it's a love triforce. Where it's like, <laughs> it's still a triangle, it's just that each element is kind of more, like, it interlocks with one and the other. Am I saying that I would like to see a version of Legend of Zelda where Ganondorf is like a young, hot, sexy Gerudo? And Jesus like, I don't know, I'm like, the medication is taking its effect, I'm just gonna throw this out there, you know, like, we'll see. I'm sure that there's plenty of fanfic people out there that would be totally going, yes, yes, exactly so. <laughs> there are dozens of us, I'm, uh, dozens! I'm, I'm just saying that I brought this moment up specifically because the moment struck me in a way now after having already read the book, noticing that the moment sticks out to me like a sore thumb and therefore mm -hmm. needing to comment on it. I don't even necessarily think that Abigail herself thinks that James is interested in Harry that way. Mm -hmm. I think she understands the level that James is on. By which I mean that James not only has a natural empathy for Harry, but potentially sees in her something of a kindred spirit. And now everyone is going to have to get a dime out for a new, different jar, because I'm once more going to invoke Elementary. One of my favorite aspects of that show is that even though this Watson is female, there is never a hint of romance between them. Sherlock's fascination with Joan Watson is because he sees in her not only things that he lacks, but aspects of her that show she has the capacity for being just as good a detective as him, and he wants to encourage and nurture that. That version of Holmes and Watson are kindred spirits in a wholly equal way, even with Joan being more neurotypical than Sherlock. During their initial encounter, that's what I saw in James's response to Harry. Recognition and admiration, but not necessarily desire. Not yet, anyway. And at the same time, they're very different people now than they were as kids. Mm. They generally have more control over themselves. Mm. And honestly, aside from the fact that James and Abigail kissed as a result of the contact they made with the orb at the House of Respect, James, in general, does not seem to be the kind of person that openly seeks out interactions with other people. This is one of the very things we discussed last time around, is that he is a man that is dedicated to his work 
and so therefore tends to keep himself apart from others except where it is absolutely necessary or where Frank pulls him into, let's go have lunch with all of these people and everything <laughs> like that. So at this juncture, we don't necessarily know how James even potentially feels about romantic entanglements. As the saying goes, once burned is twice shy. Given his logical brain and previous trauma, he may well have decided that romance is something he will do without, in order to avoid issues both external and internal. Or, to put it another way, in order to avoid issues both without and within. I'm obviously trying to avoid saying anything concrete about what's to come. Toby and I are trying to talk about these chapters in a vacuum, how the content comes across in the moment, while not getting into the fact that he and I do know what happens next. But it is still interesting and useful to discuss what might be going on in their brains, as an exercise in both empathy and analyzing the fictional language used. I'm not entirely certain that Abigail wouldn't be necessarily ruffled by James taking interest in somebody else, but I don't think it's occurred to her at this point that James is interested in Harry that way. And I don't necessarily even think that it's occurred to Abigail that she might be interested in Harry that way. I just think that there is a quality to her written response about Harry that hints about the possibility that she might be. Mm. And, and, that, and that we only know that that's it, even a possibility because of the pre-existing information we have thanks I mean, to Secret Rooms. Put it this way. I've seen fanfics that have been built on less grounds for like <laughs> a relationship. So, you know. that That is fair. We were talking about fanfic a moment ago. So mm. <laughs> I didn't necessarily mean to. Sorry. But, come into conflict with you about this. I just <laughs> kind of wanted to make it clear that I wasn't suggesting anything from this early moment, merely more reflecting on how the previous books, specifically the updated previous books, give us context for this tiny moment that changes my reflection on how I read it or that I read anything into it at all. Because, once more, I don't want to spoil anything for new readers. Another detail that I noticed very early in Chapter 5. After the introduction, Thomas responds to Abigail's and James's words of admiration with unexpected disapproval, which takes us, the audience, by surprise. You and I find... Abigail's excitement endearing. Her excitement not only at meeting the Arlingtons, but even like how it began, where she was excited about meeting Dr. Kaufman and getting his signature. Thomas, on the other hand, appears to find this behavior tiresome. And Abigail herself realizes that she's somehow managed to step in it during that first introduction. And it's here that I once more think about the idea of arrested development for James and Abigail as a result of trauma. Yes, the experience of being young may have meant something different in both our history's late 19th century 
and the alternative history of New Century. But the fact mm. that she is excited about meeting what to her are celebrities should be lauded, not discouraged. And once more, I reflect on the differences between Thomas and Sarah, how his focus is primarily on surviving and Sarah's is more on living. The reason I bring this up is that it feels like over the course of chapters 5 and 6 and beyond, Thomas starts offering to James a modicum more respect. I interpreted this as Thomas seeing in James a similar level of practicality and logic, whereas Abigail comes across as more impulsive. My initial impulse was to say that James and Abigail have likely not had the chance to interact and talk with as extensive a range of people as adults their age would have in our present reality, or even back in the unaltered timeline equivalent of their world in the 19th century. But thinking on it a bit more, that may be true near the start of their adventure in secret rooms, but mm -hmm. by this point, they've had some time, like six months or so, I believe, to settle into the new rhythms of navigating the wider world outside of Weirwood. Not enough time to become masters of social discourse, certainly, but enough time for the initial jitters to dissipate, I should think. Especially since Abigail has managed to climb the ranks since her opening days as a cartographer, and Annie wasn't always around to grease the wheels on that, so... I think her abilities and aptitude for the roles she has secured for herself have been picked up on more besides the characters that we know about. But even so, few of us are equipped for meeting with leaders in high positions of national government, much less ones that we actually respect. And, you know, it's always difficult to know how we'll conduct ourselves when we encounter authors of works that mean a great deal to us. Not that anyone on this podcast would know anything about that. No siree. <laughs> it does... Oh boy, I'm about to do this again. Um... <laughs> oh boy, he's about to do it again, everybody. I'm just saying, get your penny ready here, because it makes me think of the West Wing. Oh, he said the thing! He said the thing! <laughs> In the second season, there's a specific character named Ainsley Hayes, who, even though she is politically the exact opposite of President Bartlett and has strong disagreements with how his administration is conducting itself, she is still very nervous about meeting him or meeting anybody in a significant position. Good evening, Mr. President. Is she here? Ainsley Hayes? Yeah. Yes, sir. Where is she? Well, she's in the closet, Mr. President. Why? She thought it was a bathroom. Why is she still in there? That's kind of hard to say, sir. Why don't we get her out here? Yeah. How you doing? We met last night. You were singing and dancing in the bathroom. Yes, sir. Why were you in the closet? I had to pee. They won't let me smoke inside, but you can pee in Leo's closet. Mr. President. I appreciate you coming to work for me, Ainsley. You're an exceptionally bright young woman. Gary. Is your father proud of you? Yes, sir. I bet he is. Regardless of the fact that she may not agree with them, it's still kind of a huge thing to be in the presence of someone fairly important and everything like that. Not even necessarily because you're worried about 
what influence they could have on your life necessarily, just because we don't usually expect to get the attention of someone that significant. Um, hmm. And it's stage fright. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's something that we're going to have to talk more about as there's more individual interactions between Abigail and Thomas in terms of their specific dynamic. At first, I thought to myself, is it partly because of the age thing? But then I remember that, okay, yes, Thomas may be much older than most of the people present here. Butler at that point is in his 30s. And mm -hmm. Annie herself is only 23. In mm -hmm. point of fact, as I recall, Abigail is a year older than Annie is. So yes. it's less the actual age and more just the way Abigail is conducting herself that makes Thomas skeptical about, really, this is who you brought me here? Uh in terms of taking her seriously. God damn it, Annie, you brought me two quirky protagonists. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. No, that, uh, from a weird meta or a weird uh, genre-savvy level there, that would actually be kind of hilarious. Um, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that we're not re meant to read that much into it. No, no. <laughs> but it does have that energy, does it not? Yeah, a little bit. I will add for now that regardless of how old James and Abby actually are, Thomas might understandably respond poorly to immaturity, even if it's harmless. After all, we've already brought up on multiple occasions how he tends to regard the American people as children. Made all the more significant by the fact that he actually is a father, his own daughter is of a similar age to our secret room's protagonists. Among... The other small details and callbacks that I enjoy. Uh, first of all, when everyone's getting a drink and James is like, no, no, I'm, I'm not interested in alcohol. And someone else is suggesting, what about sarsaparilla? And I can't help now but remember, we suspect James likes sarsaparilla specifically because of the Smilax Ornata that Dr. Potts offers them. James is, of course, familiar with it and therefore knows that this is just a sweet concoction that's part of a preferred soft drink of the time. You know, between this and the peppermint, our signature analysis move seems to be identifying flavors of personal significance to James Penrose. So, for that blurb on the show, and <laughs> in all sincerity, that was a very good observation. I genuinely, these little tidbits are just always fascinating to see. Sometimes, like, you can have a very dramatic echoing forward where James's childhood kind of makes his meeting of the steam heart feel grand and magnificent. She's not the steam heart. She's just, she's just plain old steam heart. Nothing plain or old about her. But you can also weave in little things like this that are much smaller, which nevertheless feel like little repetitions of this personal character's history. Well, and that's always satisfying. Well, we do know, as far as Alex's tendencies, is that he likes to add in a lot of these smaller bits. So I can't say for certain if I've picked out something that Alex intended to put in there, because as he and Sharon have gone on to say, sometimes we end up noticing things that they didn't. It's just mm. because we know Alex's tendencies, 
I'm constantly always looking out for things that could be significant. This is how you and I make a meal out of individual chapters of a story and find interesting things to talk about apart from the larger scale of like theme and storytelling movements and character development. We pick out these things and be like, ah, ah, see, he did something here. We think he did something here at least, you know. This is what happens when we take it upon ourselves to do a deep analysis and still manage to miss basic facts, like Durga tribe having not one, but two chiefs. It makes us try all the harder. Enhance! Zoom! <laughs> Another of those callbacks, Abigail mentions that telling, quote-unquote, the entire story would take six and a half hours. Speaking of getting meta. Yeah, exactly. And in this particular case, I basically tried to go back and do some rough calculations as to how long the Secret Room's Definitive Edition audio drama takes. Now, mm. my numbers could be off because I was at first trying to use the audiobook numbers and then discovered that I accidentally deleted some of the files. that They got split up somehow, and I don't know how mm. that happened. So I actually had to go to the podcast feed and see if I could get approximations from that, which is more complicated because obviously they add several minutes of credits every week. And what I came down to was that the definitive edition takes about five and three quarters hours. But given the fact that, you know, obviously Alex himself has the raw files and knows exactly how long it takes, my numbers could be off. What I'm saying is, is that regardless of the fact that I couldn't get it exactly, I feel a strong suspicion that Abigail's offhand comment here is a sly authorial insert as to the length of the Secret Room story. I mean, with all the summaries we're working through of these past books, I think we were due a sly meta gag about what it would be like for our protagonists to deliver the unabridged version of their story up till now. And I love that Jeremy insists on hearing exactly that later on. Unlike a few chapters ago, these are interviewees in good health, and he fully intends to indulge in the luxury of time that he will have with them. I mean, if the gag wanted to get really meta, then James would then say something along the lines of, I swear it didn't used to take as long to tell before those editions. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a good point. The audio drama would have been smaller, if not for all of the flashback journal entries from when they were kids nine years ago. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. The next thing on my list here, this chapter cleverly avoids not one, but two title drops. Abigail mentions at one point looking for secret doors and hidden rooms. And not only is this technically a reference to secret rooms, but the fact that at one point, one of the books of phase two was going to be called Hidden Doors. Ah, dang it, you took the one thing I was going to bring up. I mean, like I had to rewind that part when I heard it again, just to double check that that was going on there. It shows just how much consideration is going into the writing here. This isn't just the Wikipedia plot synopsis of both previous works. This is an opportunity to say more about the characters by the way they recount past events. 
whether it's their choice of words or their emotional commentary on certain moments, whether it's reflecting on Krieger or discomfort, everything, one or two things that transpired, like their kiss. But even then, we get little gems like this that show that the writing isn't just going on autopilot. There's material here to mine and unpack, even when it's ostensibly previously covered content. It's also at this point that I suddenly realized the ongoing joke that we had at one point where we would slyly insert our own title drop into Through the Window when discussing whatever book we were currently on. We've mm. kind of gotten away from that a little bit because the last three books, The Cartographer's Handbook, Arlington... Oh, if we did that with Arlington, we would have never fucking stopped. Yeah, exactly. That little musical sting that I put in whenever I uh, jokingly refer to a title drop. We have to refer to Thomas too frequently as Arlington for it to have any significance. The same with the Cartographer's Handbook. And of course, we're constantly bringing up Steamheart the Craft as well as Steamheart the Book. Mm. It's different when you have a title that is a specific thing in the story rather than something more metaphorical like let them go i think when it's a name of someone that like doesn't necessarily feel like you're doing the title drop it kind of has to be a certain phrase for that to feel like you yeah. know people don't make the title drop joke about thor or like thor yeah. ragnarok they'll make it out of like the guardians of the galaxy and how like it takes the whole film and then the villain jokingly <laughs> says like here you're guardians of the galaxy tm <laughs> it's a moment in that because it's not something that has as concrete a presence let them go is this idea of ah okay this is something that's at the elemental truth of this but it's not necessarily going to be something that we find obviously immediately present like you know if tiger's eye was just called hral which like <laughs> you know i'd still buy it again it's also entirely possible that you and i are reading something into it that alex did not intend it's just the fact that she uses the term secret doors and hidden rooms it's hard for me to not see the uh, play on words, a potential juxtaposition going on there. So I had to bring it mm. up. It would be the equivalent of someone bringing up Tiger's soul or a panther's eye. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, something like that. Exactly yeah. so. But you brought up the kiss a moment ago, and that is next on my list in terms of unusual eyebrow-lifting moments. It relates once more to how the book frames a specific moment and how the audio drama frames a specific moment. Not in regards to one necessarily being different from the other, but the fact that the novel will add extra words to convey the scene in ways the audio drama would do through acting. Abigail is uncomfortable about revealing that touching the orb caused James and Abigail to kiss. In the story, she's like, do we actually have to talk about this? And the book goes on to say that McTavish is poker-faced as he insists that they need every specific detail and that this moment is going to be significant for whatever judgments Unicorn is going to have to make about it. And I just feel like there's a different word or a different way they could have framed it 
to make it just seem like McTavish is like, no, no, this is for posterity here. We need this for very serious reasons. But the use of that word poker faced, it's not just that Donald is a generally sort of dour and taciturn, very, very reserved person in general, but it makes it feel like he is trying to hold back a reaction and therefore that he's getting some sort of potential enjoyment out of making Abigail admit to the kiss. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I'm wondering to myself, was their initial report vague? And that's why he's insisting on more descriptiveness in this moment. Or did he potentially suspect that something embarrassing might have happened? And now he just really wants the dish. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm not sure of that, Reed, because like, I, I don't feel that McTavish's personality necessarily makes him the sort of guy who's inclined to tease people. He's literally just met by drawing something he suspects they'd be uncomfortable with out of them. I think McTavish asked because the information they had really did feel vague or incomplete, and he needs to fill in the records because this is likely the most important matter that him and Jeremy's department has ever been involved with. I interpret poker faced as like essentially inscrutable. It's almost like that description is saying less about him and more about Abigail sort of like trying to discern the reaction from him. Mm. Like it feels like that descriptor is not necessarily indicative of like an internal feeling of Donald. I think it's like more like she doesn't know Donald either and because Mm. of his quite sort of like semi-dour tone that could be a little inscrutable uh, for someone like to just discern what their thoughts are like not even like a raised eyebrow or something like that it's just a sort of very matter-of-fact way to handle the situation it's just even the word inscrutable implies that there is something to scrut, so to speak. There might be some alternate motivation behind whatever that's going on. Though if the wording of the moment had been McTavish said seriously, as we would expect him to be serious mm. all the time, then we would not read anything further into that. Mm. But I think that, uh, like, if you say that, like, Donald was, and to be honest, this conversation is kind of proof of it, is that like, if you say that the character said something seriously, it's pretty cemented, like, that's just the tone of it. I think that you can achieve the idea, this impression that he said it sort of seriously, of, well, we need to find this out. But, like, by having it be poker-faced, it kind of is a more for lack of a better word, interesting way of saying uh, that he said it seriously. It's non-conclusive, and the fact that you and I are like talking about like whether he is like, having this reaction or not is, I think, the whole point of it. And sometimes with like a poker face, it's sort of like I might be mishandling the application of the term just in day-to-day language, but in terms of the actual game... You don't always have, like, your poker face for when you're lying, because then it wouldn't necessarily be 
a particularly strong poker face because mm. it's just sort of like you have to like maintain a sort of even temperament in all manner of situations because like you're not always just sort of putting down hands that are complete lies and fabrications you are sometimes throwing people off so i i think with donald that there's enough there for me to feel as if there may be something to scrut but i propose that there may be less to scrut the thing that i am certain of amidst all these scrutinizations and inscrutinizations is that whatever the case he is absolutely this very different personality to what uh, Abigail has come across up to this point. You're saying it's a contrast of McTavish versus Jeremy, who is always very, very excited about everything. Very, like you know, I think that like that's kind of another thing is that like Jeremy would be in any sort of instance of like descriptive language of how he's engaging with the conversation jeremy is wearing his heart on his sleeve but his partner not so much here mm. and also just like a lot of the personalities before this even very enigmatic and mysterious characters like uh krieger those were people with like engaging conversational aspect to them whereas with donald here it's almost a, there's not even that to latch on to and so i think that Abigail is definitely having some kind of like sort of difficulty in this moment because it's one thing to be asked, yes, it's important that you say this when you feel a bit uncomfortable with it. But when the person it's like, I can never get a read on that guy. Like that's kind of the feeling I get from the moment. That's actually a really good point right there is that this chapter is told through the quote unquote journal entry of Abigail. And so, therefore, it's Abigail's choice of word. Yes. And it's weird for me to even bring this up, because obviously, when I first experienced Steamheart, it was through the audio drama. And it's mm. only now, going back to the written account, that I'm seeing differences, whereas during the audio drama, the voice actor, Derek, would have had to just communicate Donald's demeanor through acting. And it's only here that we see that Alex had to put into words what Donald's mannerisms was. But it's still Abigail's journal entry, so it is a reflection of how she felt at the time watching him insist that she explain what happened. So yes, that actually puts everything into context right there, that it's all about who's speaking and who's interpreting. And as you say, Abigail is very sensitive to people's reactions. Yeah, that is like something we've always sort of talked about of the skill sets of Abigail versus James is that he knows people well enough in the sense that he can make suppositions about their movements, their actions, in order to like make conclusions about things that they have been up to. I'm thinking of that particular exchange early on when he was concluding that someone was having an affair mm -hmm. uh, just based on little information. And that's quite a sort of human interaction that maybe someone would be able to use sort of human or emotional cues to come to the same conclusion through more like intuitive things like that. But I think the difference is that Abigail 
can sort of sense the personalities of people or she's interested in discerning that i think she also has very emotional evaluations of people in general Mm. whereas james tends to be far more clinical and be like this piece of evidence and that piece of evidence this piece of evidence over there suggests this thing about this person over here whereas abigail tends to have more value judgments in terms of reading what their emotional state is and comparing that to her own having emotional reactions to the emotional reactions of others basically people like to talk a lot about the different kinds of intelligence that are out there and it seems clear that one of abigail's strengths is emotional intelligence that doesn't necessarily mean she's perfect at it we've seen how those value judgments can get in the way of being diplomatic but as we'll talk more about later on it's clear that her past experiences have affected how she chooses to go about things that she has been influenced by annie but also by her trauma that saying the right thing or the wrong thing can have major consequences, and therefore Abigail being able to read people is something she cultivated as a defense mechanism, if nothing else. On the same subject, the the last little tiny talking point that we have here is that at one point during the text of chapter 6, Truth reacts to the story of Krieger killing Charlotte. And Mm. Abigail mentions this was at least something that she and I agreed on. And obviously you and I have read the entire book. We know how the relationship does or doesn't develop between Abigail and Truth. It's just that at this point in the story, I actually went back to every time that Truth spoke up during that first meeting in the Arlington's office And it doesn't really seem like Abigail and Truth have been talking all that much to each other. Truth has had things to say about what is being revealed to her, but it doesn't seem like they're having a personality clash now like you and I know they will have later on. It's a bit of a, well, moment to me in in, in Mm. retrospect. And that's why I actually needed to go back and say, okay, is there anything that they disagreed on prior to this? Or is it just, as we were saying a moment ago, is there something about Truth's manner that Abigail is emotionally reacting to that kind of sets her on edge, even at this early moment? Without the text in front of me, it's hard for me to comment. If it's as you surmise, then yeah, it is a little strange for Abigail to exhibit a facet of the dynamic that they've not really developed at this stage. But going by what I'm hearing in the audiobook version of the chapter, I ain't hearing anything that seems out of place yet in the same way. To be clear, the line about this was something we agreed upon is not in the audio drama. In spite of the fact that this is technically a journal entry, most of the events of chapters 5 and 6 have a very in-the-moment feel to them, perhaps partly because Thomas mentions at one point that he is recording the conversation with the Vox Tube. But Abigail doesn't seem to emotionally respond to Truth's cursing in the audio drama, so this may be an unusual artifact of an earlier draft where the two did clash. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a sort of odd uh, moment, unless like Abigail, we were talking about, like intuiting this, is 
really making a accurate assertion of like what Truth's character is and knowing that, oh, we're going to have some disagreements, which I think is a little premature of mm-hmm. her. This is one that I didn't have a lot to contribute to. So, yeah, yeah. I'm just sort of offering a non-committal shrug on this particular one. I think that we will have more to latch on to with the conversation mm-hmm. of the nature of what their disagreements will be as characters. You know, not getting into too much spoilers, but in the coming chapters, each of these characters are going to get to know each other a bit better because mm-hmm. this is very much a sort of meeting room episode or yeah. set of episodes. It's a bottle chapters. episode. <laughs> <laughs> it's very much this sort of like we have a lot of like matters to discuss of what's to be done about blank and there's absolutely a lot of opportunities for characters to get to know each other to interact with one another and for you to get a feeling of them it's not just passing the who gets to speak token around so that we relay the like main plot points between the different characters they're all like chiming in with observations that feel very much in line with who they are and what they bring to the table but what that means is that there is very much a focus on that whereas i think in the coming episodes we're going to see a lot more of like a mixture of yes here's a practical thing that we're working on in the scene but you know we're not necessarily all as on edge and on the clock because this is a meeting that like James and Abigail have spent a long time making sure that they can get to so that they can have this conversation with these Mm. people. And for everyone else, it's like, okay, we're making in this moment decisions about like what's to be done. Like Alex likes to sort of uh, make the phrase of like a lot of uh, old men in (laughs) rooms smoking cigarettes and talking about uh, things. And that's not what the scene is by a lot of means, but it's certainly a bit more of a, okay, here's the thrust of the narrative. Where are we going from here? So, yeah, uh, that was a very long way to say I'm going to wait and see before I sort of mm. talk more about Abigail and Truth, because at this point we know who they are, we know what their roles are, and with what we know about them, we can make a lot of, like, sort of suppositions about oh they may not get on well with each other because of x y or z but i think the specifics are going to come later the the subject that you brought up just now is actually a really good segue into the next talking point you were mentioning all of the side commentary as abigail and james are retelling the story of secret rooms and everyone's like oh, I have extra questions, or I already read the account of this. Um, This is what I thought about it. What do you think about that? And everything like that. The intriguing thing about the way these chapters are laid out is many of the details that are brought up are ones that you and I already suspected were going to be significant, that they were going to be things that might get brought up later on, stuff that we covered during our retrospective of Secret Rooms. And to some, it might be frustrating to have things that were subtext spelled out in text. But on the other hand, 
I think the narrative is doing a good job of highlighting all the details that are important, but only giving quote unquote definitive answers to those questions that are specifically germane to the plot. I also suspect that some of this back and forth might be an authorial response to comments or questions past readers of Secret Rooms might have had about that book. Everybody got that? Right. <laughs> yes. I've never seen Spaceballs, but I quote it so often. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I really should uh, rectify that at one point. Anyway, you do certainly need to provide more than just a recounting of past events, as we've already gone over all of it. I understand the authorial principle to not over-explain or provide the thematic analysis and close readings of your own work within the text itself, and Alex has talked about this feeling before as well, from yeah. our it, conversations, interviews, just all of that. Like Exactly, this, that's part of the whole reason that Through the Wind Door exists, is so yeah. that people can talk about it without mm. Alex needing to put his oar in, and mm. remove all doubt in terms of, this is what I meant, you got it right or you got it wrong. Uh, I know that it's difficult for him sometimes to not talk about it, but... Of course he that... wants to talk about it. He's written all these bloody things. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, he shows a great restraint, but uh, you know what? Move over, old man behind the white scarves. <laughs> Through the window is young and hip and here to stay. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. With all of that having said, you do need to strive for a particular balance in scenes like this. If you unpack and explain too much, you may rob the original text of any sense of being open to further interpretation beyond what the author has decreed is the takeaway of those story beats and details. However, if you don't do a little bit of unpacking and discussion among your characters, then the chapter feels superfluous. Mm. We're just going over what we already know without any of the characters showing any attempts to understand these events further. The discussion is the progression, as having this conversation in this room with these people is exactly the exciting development that the end of Secret Rooms left us hanging on. I mentioned just a moment ago, like James and Abigail have spent many weeks, possibly months, traveling to get to this place. Bit of a flub here, as Chapter 6 specifically mentions that it took them 10 days to travel from Orangeburg, South Carolina, to D.C. Although, if we're talking about the metaphorical journey of time from October of 1882 to March 21st of 1883, then yes, it has taken them months to resolve this mystery. Steamheart doesn't happen if we don't have a scene where characters go over these key events and reflect on their implications and what's to be done about them. Yes, it's important for your stories in your ongoing series to have broader implications for the audience to pick up on and go over in their heads between stories, but in a lot of cases, the point of some of these implications is for them to act as seeds that will one day grow and bloom into future story beats, and that's what we're seeing here, because if all of these implications are left as just that implications, then that's not really, like, there's not a lot of substance there. You need to have a thing happen and then people go, oh shit, maybe this means that. 
and then later some of those things will happen and it goes oh yeah we were thinking about this but if it's just like all right we're checking all of that in the bin you all did too much supposition on your own you guessed the story so we had to change it like yeah, 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 yeah. like we like to think about this and it's good to see the characters think about this one of those seeds that you mentioned a moment ago is the fact that at a certain point the text highlights that mention of first contact in the journal mm. left by Krieger. You and I didn't get a, a chance to talk about that because this is something that occurred to me as I was doing the edit for the specific chapter in which this came up. But the fact that Thomas is very intrigued by that moment but acknowledges that we can't possibly know what it actually means, who or what the first contact is actually referring to. That's a good way of highlighting the difference between needing to establish certain things as being, this is going to be important for what we're building on. This is foundation and other things, which is, this isn't going to be important for what we're doing right now, but isn't it interesting, and what could this possibly mean for future storytelling? Mm. What we see here is an example of why you have to have these characters question the facts and details we've been presented with. These are analytical people, not just James and Harry, like, all of them mm -hmm. think about shit, like... <laughs> Like, that's part of why we like them. That mm -hmm. They are the people actioning change of some sort. They are going to do some introspection of their own. It's how you make your setting and characters feel alive when they aren't just automatically and arbitrarily moving on to the next story beat because that's their function, but they're instead considering things and having their own sense of interiority. It's the difference between a basic computer program following its code through to achieve its task and the concept of artificial intelligence that assesses its surroundings and the new information presented to it and thinks on them, learns from them, and reacts accordingly. It's definitely true, at the very least for you and I, and I suspect a number of other audience members as well, that we like when our main characters are smart and it can get under our skin when it feels like they're missing things that we understand are important and mm. it takes the characters in the story longer to sort of figure out our important. Mm. You know, a lot of people will sort of think like, oh, so like all these stories need to be about smart people. We don't necessarily need them to be like, all of your characters being of high intelligence. Like well, but in again, some... as we mentioned a moment ago, there are different kinds of intelligence. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Abigail has one of them. James mm. has one of them. Yeah. We're all pattern-matching machines. The only difference is what our brains match as being mm. significant. It's not even necessarily that there are people that are stupider than others. I mean... I don't, I don't necessarily like to cast aspersions on the overall intelligence of anybody. But my point is, just because one person's brain doesn't match a certain pattern doesn't necessarily make them stupid. They're noticing other patterns that are more important to them. And hmm. sometimes those patterns can be self-serving and 
short-sighted. You know, we tend to associate people that are able to understand things that are bigger than themselves, that are able to have a certain objectivity or a certain clarity or even a certain empathy that the mm. average person doesn't have. I suppose the term that was coming to mind for me is that it's not necessarily that I need them to be smart. I need them to be questioning. Curious. Question. Yeah. Essentially that they don't just take something at face value. Mm. Like they find out about something and they don't necessarily like, you know, take it a level further. Like it's, it's what people like to say of people who are like, reactive rather than active like uh, mm. you know i i think a good example of like an instance where people are like we really need this person to be more like questioning is anakin in the prequels the recording got a little garbled here and it took me a bit to parse out what toby was saying that i was responding to but in summary toby was mentioning how anakin is questioning and rebellious against obi-wan and the jedi because the answers they offer don't satisfy him. And the second that he finds a single voice that offers different answers, that questioning attitude stops. Palpatine's guidance gives him answers he wants to hear. And even though he might have been right in some cases to question Jedi teachings, it doesn't change the fact that it never occurs to him in time that Palpatine might be wrong or manipulating him. His impulses override that early skepticism because Palpatine encourages him to act emotionally and he doesn't fully map out where those impulses are leading him. You're talking about self-awareness. Yes. You, well, wish that self people, you, you wish that people would show more self-awareness and realize that they have certain weaknesses that they have to watch out for. And sometimes they fall for these kinds of pitfalls, but sometimes they're able to see, oh, wait, mm. I'm mm. being irrational or I'm accepting yeah. this explanation way mm. too quickly. Because I think that you can have your characters still make the conclusions that you as a writer need them or want them to make while still having them make these questions because then it just results in a more fascinating, like it makes that same facet of their character more engaging of like interest to me because mm. you're showing that they will have the awareness of why maybe they shouldn't take the decision that they are leaning towards, but that it just says more to their character of exactly what we say, of what they prioritize. And they say, well, even if that is the case, these other things mean too much to me for me to not take this path to, because yes, maybe like it's a risk to take in this person during a zombie apocalypse, but like my human decency and kindness, even in these stressful situations, means enough to me that I have to take this chance. This is what this chapter is, is them mm -hmm. like deciding what do we do with this? We know that it's a foregone conclusion. They're going to go on this journey. We've seen the front cover. We <laughs> have heard the premise of it. But isn't it a fascinating conversation to have nonetheless? Like, it can be an interesting conversation and an interesting moment for your characters, an interesting scene, just to have characters think, reflect, and question, even if the conclusion is forgotten. Put another way, 
the point of a story is often not the seemingly inevitable success if it's that kind of story. It's the journey along the way, whether that journey is a physical one or not. We like complexity. Mm. We like we, we and and it's capable of being complex without being idealistically perfect or anything like that because that's yeah. also boring. We don't mm. necessarily want people that never make mistakes. We want people that have moments of illogic or difficult emotional stuff to work around. Mm. But we still want them to be capable of being more than simply one-note characters. And mm. New Century is very good at providing that. Yeah, because if they're one-note, and this goes back to what I was saying, uh, uh, they're a function. They're not a character of complex interacting priorities and influences. They're just, this is the person who disagrees with the main character. I recently was revisiting a Telltale game, uh, Wolf Among Us, just after the announcement of the sequel, mm-hmm. just watching a playthrough of that. And a trap that I think a lot of the games they put out fell into is that certain characters felt like they were more a function, almost literally mm. in a gameplay design sense, because it felt as if their role was to, no matter what you did, they would there to be a source of conflict for this reason. And they wouldn't necessarily reflect and interact. It, it felt like there was never a chance in certain scenes with Telltale games that characters could change their mind because everyone mm. else was so staunchly set on their mind and it was up to the player because they have to be fixed points almost. Like, they don't necessarily change as fluidly as, like some of the main characters do because the whole point is about these other pieces how are you going to interact with them which can lead to some moments of frustration with some of those ultimately i mean some of what you're talking about here is very specifically the more general storytelling conceit of some characters are subjects and some characters are objects Mm. some people do things which move the plot along, and some people are more like objects in that they are there for the subjects to get to do something or to get around, whatever Mm. it is. An object in a personal sense can be, as you said a moment ago, a character who is just there to be an obstruction and Mm. not really someone with an internal life of their own that has Mm. reasons for the way that they are choosing to behave or, as you say, can be convinced with a sufficient argument. Because even if you are able to convince someone of something, if there isn't a reason inside their own brain for them to be convinced, then Mm. that could simply be like, you know, the equivalent of those people that be like, oh, I just have to put the right compliment into a woman and sex comes out. Here you can just picture Toby facepalming in response to my turn of phrase before we come to the end of this week's show. Tune in next week, where we have even more to say about chapters 5 through 7. One brief bit of bookkeeping. After listening to this week's show for errors, Toby had another thought about Donald McTavish pressing Abigail for clarification regarding the moments after touching the orb. 
As you've already heard, one of our topics this week was the idea that some of the contents of chapters 5 and 6 might be Alex directly responding to queries from the audience from previous books. The Watsonian explanation for Donald's behavior may have been because of James' vagueness on the VoxTube report that was in Secret Rooms. But the Doyleist explanation might have been Alex revealing something only hinted at in the novel. At first, I thought this was redundant. I clearly remembered talking about the kiss being explicit back in our Secret Rooms retrospective. But on second thought, I went back to double-check and realized that Toby's supposition had some merit. One of the things that we covered in our retrospective is that one of the changes from the original Secret Rooms to the definitive edition is that the old novel did not make the kiss explicit, only suggesting some vaguer notion of quote-unquote torrid contact. So indeed, Alex slightly felt that he had to make sure this detail made it in. He had to make the nature of the intimate contact clear to those people that might have not yet read or listened to the definitive edition. So, all kudos to Toby for bringing that up. To close us out, I may have already mentioned my love of Annie Lennox in our previous episodes, but in this case, I came across something unexpected while perusing an artist I'm only just starting to get to know, Haley Steinfeld. In addition to her acting work in Bumblebee, Into the Spider-Verse, and The Hawkeye Show, she's also an accomplished singer. I became aware of her a while back because of Alex sharing a song called Most Girls that blew my socks off. But in this case, Haley sampled a song that Annie Lennox made popular to make something new. Written by Haley regarding the time one needs to take to heal from a failed relationship before starting a new one, it made me think of all our discussions regarding the interest of James and Abby in each other and or Harry. Until next time, this is Haley Steinfeld with I Love Yous. I'm sitting here jaded Yeah, I fell asleep with the makeup Still all on my skin Wide awake again I'm praying I make it I'm stepping the 12 But it's summer, I've already been Diamonds won't fool me Cause I'm too far gone Wish I could get back The air in my lungs I've been so fucked up It's bad for me
Now there's no fear, no more running 